Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Mike, co-founder and CTO of Timescale, and we discuss the impact of time series data, how Mike's experience as a professor gives him insight as a CTO, and how T-shaped people are getting ahead professionally by leaning into their strengths. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So dude, why do you need time series specific databases? You know, it was interesting when my co-founder and I started, we were actually looking at this broad problem of all these devices were coming online, all this operational data. You know, I think the last kind of 50 years were they call the digitizing the back office. And now everything's getting digital, you know, digitized. It's houses, it's people, it's trucks, it's manufacturing lines. And so you think that often the value from this is actually the data coming off. It's not that they're connected, it's that they're connected and sensing and we could do things with them. And we want to build then applications, like developers and teams want to build applications that use this data. And what do you need for a core part of any type of you know, data-rich application is a database. And so when we were actually started this, we were more specifically looking at IoT, but when we ended up building initially our database for IoT, but kind of we came to realize that actually the database that we built for the data-driven applications for IoT is much broader. And, you know, at timescale, we now have this database that could, you know, solve problems for not just IoT, but for observability and for crypto and for fintech and for marketing and for logistics. Basically, we, we kind of like to say is that all data is actually time series data. If you think about it, capture the finest granularity is about the rate of change. And, you know, great data products need a great database. And so that's what we've, that's what we built here at Timescale. So my background, software engineer for 17 years. Then I started this podcast, so I haven't been actively writing code for about three years. But would it be a separate database just for time series specific data or is it all one database? Explain that to me. More specifically, we're actually a relational database that scales for time series data. And we're actually built on top of Postgres, which is, you know, this amazing open source community driven product. And we like to say that we, you know, supercharge Postgres for time series data. Because what we find is actually it's not just those sensor data, right? It's, it's not just the, the metrics or the events. You actually often have other data, other relational data, other business data around it. And so often what we find is that people want to store inside a single database or possibly on our cloud across multiple databases that talk together, that both the time series data that they're collecting, the metrics, the sensor data, the events, other typing, as well as all the information around it that really makes it valuable for the applications they're building. And you said it's open source, so people can like go sign up for it? Yep, you could go, you could go on GitHub, you could download and play it. We also, kind of from a business perspective, Timescale offers Timescale Cloud. So we offer a fully managed and really a, a whole product experience around what developers, how developers want to build, kind of build modern applications and to manage services in the cloud. But yeah, people could also just go to GitHub and download it. I like that, because a lot of the time what I would do in the past, like when working on projects, you know, you get a project and you have to figure out the tool set that you're going to use to accomplish the goal. And so you got to learn a bunch of new technologies and tools and whatnot if you're like an agency type company. And then 
I would really enjoy it when I could find one of the open source solutions that I could download, play with, and then I'd just go use like the paid hosted solution simply because I don't want to manage like updates. And there's like a number of small items that specifically were important to me. Whenever I see companies come across with that business model, I'm always a big fan. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, two things. First of all, you say you could use open source because you could get all the tooling. I think at, at timescale, it's even almost better because we build on Postgres. It's like all the Postgres tooling works with timescale DB. So like any application framework, any ORM, any viz tool that speaks basically SQL that speaks to Postgres database just works with timescale out of the box. And that's been a real kind of one of the biggest ecosystems, one of the biggest database ecosystems out there. But to your point, you know, it was interesting from, again, from business perspective, we, from a commercial perspective, we really focus on the cloud. So we don't try to then sell you an on-premise thing. All of our our database is completely free. We don't have a proprietary version on-premise that we try to kind of upsell to people. And so we think enough of a modern developer wanted, you know, wants a full cloud experience. It's not just about hosting. It's about the entire experience that we build around that and make you more productive as a developer and allow you to build applications better, cheaper, faster. But for those, you know, good segment of the market that wants to manage themselves, wants to do dev themselves, want to stick things in their CI CD pipeline. You know, that's just, you know, all of our our kind of free um, free version, free open source version. Tell me about how can people try the product? Well, one of the easiest ways we actually offer a kind of a free unlimited kind of no credit card required 30-day trial for Timescale Cloud. And if you know you just go to timescale.com, click on a big, big button at the top, you could take immediately into the cloud experience within literally 30 seconds you'll have a database up and running you can immediately connect to it and you're kind of on your way and you know we found that has enabled people to become like you know successful really quickly and certainly see all the value with their time series data and with with timescale db what's an example of some of the benefits that sit on top of postgres sure so there's a number of different things and they're they're kind of just generally speaking big buckets you know we effectively, when you think about time series data, one of the things is there's just a lot of it. So you might think of a normal database, a normal table getting big in the millions, tens of millions of lines, uh, rows of data. We have people that in what we call it a hyper table. It's basically, it looks like a Postgres table and you could treat it like such, but we do all this magic under the covers. We have people that will store a trillion rows of data in what looks like one, you know, one table or you know, terabytes of data uh, in one table. And so we have a lot of things that focus on scalability, you know, make it really scale to those, you know, I don't know, you said you were a, a developer for, was it 15 years, 17 years? Yeah, 17 years. 17 yeah. years, like, you know, most developers don't deal with databases of like hundreds of billions of rows, um, certainly not, not frequently, but that's common when you're just constant stream of data. And so how do we make it really scalable without any duct tape and glue like a lot of solutions are? How do we just make it elegant? How do we make it much more performant for the type of queries that analytical queries that people want to do? How do we build, we build kind of automated, the technical term is like incrementally materialized view that are constantly kept up to date. But you know, you could generate summaries, you know, you have this underlying raw data and then your business problem is, I want to build real-time dashboards, or I want to give this view to my customers. And it's just one line of, of description, and then we keep that all up to date. And it's even kept up to date if you backfill data, because sometimes data arrives late. And we we're, we're kind of have all this technology under the covers that keeps up to date. We have really advanced compression 
that 95 to 98% compression and so you know really massive cost savings and then a lot of analytical capabilities that are kind of unique to doing the type of of queries that people often have um, in terms of kind of sketching functions and downsampling and approximation functions and special algorithms to make it visually interesting to do to support visualization um, so it kind of all comes built in, but it, you speak SQL, it looks like a normal database, and you, you're kind of off to the races really quickly. So you can generate visualizations for this data? Yeah, we don't build a visualization tool ourselves, but because we just speak SQL, virtually any off-the-shelf visualization tools work. You know, Grafana, Power BI, Superset. A lot of people use us both for internal visualizations, and people use Timescale for also customer-facing. We are often the serving layer of their applications. And so sometimes they use those off-the-shelf for internal, while they often use then kind of, they build custom, you know, viz and dashboards, whatever, that's branded for their own customers. And, and it because we just look like SQL and Postgres, it just works out of the box. Nice. So main thing is expandability for the volume of time series data that you'll have. Scale and performance are a huge thing while still being, you know, very cost-effective um, from compression and some new things that and additional things that we're building in the cloud uh, and really worry-free. You know, you sit on this bedrock of 25-year-old technology of, of Postgres that has been, you know, battle-tested through the decades. Nice. Yeah, I've had some conversations about that. I personally have only experienced it a little bit when I was building a um, financial software tool that did portfolio predictions for different events that would happen. Um, and, you know, they would have to figure out you know what would happen across these 12 scenarios and then another part of it was here's all the attributes of anyone's portfolio now figure out all tax considered and everything figure out the best way to withdraw this over time so we'd have to run these simulations like constantly to figure out what's the most efficient way to, to run this over time so I got to learn a little bit about it there but I've learned a lot about it talking with some of my friends that work at marketing companies yep. where they're like tracking clicks yep. and things like that and like huge amounts of data and then it's so like financial software and then marketing are two of the areas where that I've seen it myself a little bit. Yeah, I said before we started working on devices and IoT and then when you look around we like to say internally that you know all data is time series data and it's because anything that you record you can either record the latest state or you could record the change over time. And it's kind of like, what is more valuable to you, like a photo or a video? What gives you more information? And be able to have you know, a data technology and database that makes that efficient and enables you is just unlocks a lot of value to companies. You, you bring up a couple examples, you know, marketing tech, fintech. We actually have a lot of users in all those areas. And whether or not it's like traditional stuff like banking, whether or not it's traditional, you know, portfolio analysis, back testing, you know, what a lot of like hedge funds and then more modern fintech companies. And we also see this in crypto and in Web3 and in NFT. And a lot of those, the core technologies really apply to, to many of these things. You know, if you've ever lo logged into any type of, whether or not it's like, you know, crypto or traditional stocks, you'll see these candlesticks where it tracks the existence. And often that's, you know, one, fit, one minute, 15 minute, one hour, one day. We can look at different granularities. Well, I was talking before about these incremental views, and that works perfectly for this because you just say, let's actually create an automated roll-up for one minute, 30 minutes, six hours, and the database already handles that. And then the serving layer to your 
to your customer is literally just this roll-up so the database is constantly keeping up the date against the raw data. And you don't have to actually build these as 10 different pipelines. You know, we really kind of simplify the backend infrastructure that Timescale can provide for your own customers. What's like the pain point? Because there's going to be a technical pain point and then that's most likely going to bubble up into some sort of business or customer-facing pain point. What are they experiencing before they find you as the solution? Yeah, so... The biggest thing that we found, again, is because the existing market of traditional relational databases is just so massive. You know, the millions of companies using technologies like Postgres or MySQL or sometimes Mongo, though not a relational database, that were not designed for time series data, either the scale performance or the type of analysis you want to do, but they're what every developer knows. So often what happens is they pull them off the shelf and what they soon learn is like, this isn't scaling for us. It's not satisfying what we need. So a huge number of our users are really people who started on vanilla Postgres or MySQL or Mongo. They started building their applications. They realized it doesn't scale with their, with their needs, performance, and, and all of these things. And then they actually moved to timescale. But again, because we're at a core a relational database, it's not like they have to like completely you know, change this thing where they're like now having a 10 microservice thing speaking MapReduce and little Erlang functions and streaming things. And so, yeah, you can do things a lot of way, but we're technology that is 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 operationally simple uh, and yet allows you to scale and not really worry about it. So that's the biggest thing that we find. Sometimes there's also a lot of the other time series databases are are much more niche solutions they kind of typically came out of the observability space where they're really just like tracking things like CPU and so they're much more limited. And so what we see for people who might have said, well, I have a time series problem, I need a time series database. Well, if you go back to what I said before, it's not just about that metric data. It's often about the other data around it. So where a lot of other people start is they say, well, I need to deploy a solution with a niche time series database plus a database like Postgres or MySQL. Then I got to write application code to join it. And when they come to Timescale, they could actually put it all inside the database and it's much more, the pain point, it, it both solves their scale problem and it's operationally much more simple, effective, cost effect, you know, performant, et cetera. Yeah, that's a brilliant observation as far as the entrepreneurial aspect of you being the co-founder. You see these people putting these things together and you put them together and you saved them a lot of time. Yeah, and the thing what I talked about in the beginning is we initially had built TimescaleDB because we had this problem ourselves. You know, we were initially looking to solve this data problem around IoT. And we weren't starting to say like, hey, we need a new time series database. We thought, well, this new wave of computing, how do we build a data platform for that wave of computing? And in kind of looking at the market, we found this niche solution for time series database, but it couldn't satisfy our need. It wasn't performance enough. It didn't allow us to store all the metadata that we wanted about IoT devices that you need. You want to ask questions not just about what metrics, but what device? Where is this device located? How do I slice and dice it by different attributes? So we ended up building Timescale DB for our own needs for that IoT data problem. And then soon realized, and what we heard from a lot of users is how that problem was basically everywhere. It wasn't just about IoT. It was about music analytics and trucking and personal, you know, personal health 
and connected, you know, connected health devices and, and, and basically everywhere. Yeah. Now that you're bringing it up, I'm thinking it's, it's a lot of places. I'm going to have a hard, thanks a lot, bro. I'm going to have a hard time of not thinking about things in time series data now. See my ring doorbell and all those things. And, you know, like everything else during the pandemic, you got it. We got a, our uh, Peloton. And if you just think about a Peloton, there's like the internal device metrics that you know the company's collecting time series data. There's your leaderboard time series data. There's your performance over time time series data. There's the video analytics time series data. And it really is just everywhere that you want to go. And, and you, you need a solution to build for that. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Now, the company before that sort of wherever you were that inspired this and found this problem, does that IoT company still exist? Did you, is it something separate or? We were working on that for, you know, it was only about a year or so. And, you know, we had some moderate success. We had uh, a number of kind of 100,000 devices sending us data. But really, you know, Timescale was born out of what we had built for, for that entity and really, really just saw a much broader opportunity at Timescale, yeah. And so how long has Timescale been around for now? We launched in 2017, so it's been around 5 years. We, you know, we were building, you know, building the database for a bit before that, but we were initially IoT and then the minute we launched the database, just the amount of interest and the velocity of the adoption, you know, was it was really clear that this is what kind of people really needed, developers really needed. And then you, was this your second company that you founded? Yeah, so I, you know, my background is I'm also an academic. I'm a professor at, at Princeton. At a grad school, I did a lot of research in distributed systems and content delivery networks. I kind of ran a CDN, an open free CDN for about five or 10 years with lots of free users. And in grad school, I did some work around what became kind of IP geolocation. And it was a small company that was, uh, that was acquired um, I did other work that led to, if any of you are kind of have heard of uh, software-defined networking and OpenFlow, I was part of the team at Stanford that kind of developed some of that. And there were a bunch of startups, a lot of industry built around that, but I kind of moved and started a more of an academic career at Princeton. But my heart's really been in, in building product and, and building things that people use. And even the products I did, I wasn't satisfied with an academic paper. I really wanted to get in people's hand and kind of change industry. And so it kind of, uh, you all, you know, you in different parts of your career, you get kind of, you want an interest in doing a new thing. So a number of years ago, I said, you know, five or six years ago, um, I reconnected with my co-founder, uh, Ajay Kulkarni. We've actually known each other for 25 years. We met the first week of, of, of college. Both of us had started businesses before. He at the time was at Microsoft from a bunch of acquisitions from his last company. And this is really a great opportunity to tackle this new big data problem we saw. That's pretty cool. So you're still actively teaching? Yeah, although you know my my research output probably isn't what it used to be, but uh, you know I think in the end the job of all of us is to figure out how we could build great things and have an impact in the industry and the world. And I think at Timesco we like to say we really kind of help developers build the next wave of computing. And so I think that's a great mission for both of the company. I think it really excites our team as well as certainly myself personally. You actually have a fairly interesting positioning because your company has 100 plus people. And so you get to watch it grow and you get to watch the generations of people grow within your company. Outside of that culture, you're also seeing like the next generation in the classroom. So you've got like two different views where most people only will have like one like within their company. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 
I was also, you know, doing one thing for about 15 or so years. And, and it's, it's, it's always fun in different parts of your career to take off new challenges. Being a professor at a, at a research university, you know, while, you know, certainly do teach undergraduates, a major portion of that is also, you know, running a research group, which is kind of almost like a kind of the closest thing is an old apprentice model where you only have a few people and you work deeply. And I think, you know, if you want to do right for your students, which I, I think is really important, I think what makes a person successful in an academic career and what makes a team successful are very different things. You know, academic is a lot about personal accomplishment. And so you want to set up your graduate students to really be the owners of the research they're doing, not just like one, at least in academic computer science, not like one person in a major project involving 20 people. You want to set them up to be the leaders in the project. But that also leads to a certain scale where, you know, you could you kind of work on, let's say, smaller things where if you want to really have big impact, I think that's one of the really exciting things about building startups is that you could actually have a, 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 a small team from the beginning and then grow and really kind of try to have industry-wide impact. And I'm learning about you, right? So I was sure. all excited about this like dual... You know, I, I do this podcast. I've been doing it for five years, right? And so I've done 500 plus of these interviews. And one of the things I personally like to do is figure out leadership stuff, right? Mm. Like what's common between these leaders? And so for me to sort that appropriately amongst my experiences, I always try to figure out like what type of environment they're in just so I can sort of like help categorize the data. So my question that I wanted to ask is what is going on with the next generation? Is it different? Are you interacting with a lot of people, like more than 20 people at your professor job? Yeah, I mean, often class I teach are 100 plus, yeah. Okay, so what are you seeing in the next generation of leaders there? Well, I mean, I, I, I would say two things. One is that a lot of the students are very passionate about, passionate about entrepreneurship. And I think... Similar to myself, they're often optimists about the potential for technology to bring around good change in the world. And I think that's related, similar to what you see in a lot of tech companies and startups, is the rate of change, like how quickly technology can be launched, you know, given especially all the ecosystems of, of cloud computing and other ways and, and financing that we have to build and scale companies quickly. It has really excited, I think, the younger, you know, the younger generation and the ability for them to have immediate impact as opposed to like, I'm going to go work at Microsoft or something and be one of 200,000 employees or whatnot. The other thing I would say is I think that the rate of change of technology really surpasses what like we teach in, in school. I think there's good reason why colleges and universities teach fundamentals, but it's interesting at that how fast all of the the technologies and toolings around the web really surpasses what we teach and and the velocity of that changes is so fast. So it's kind of interesting in that like I think it's still good that we teach fundamentals and we you know at Prince we get a lot of smart people and if you put a bunch of smart kids in a room and teach them stuff they generally do well so we don't don't have that hard a job in that regard. But there's a lot of learning that really goes out outside the classroom, I think is really interesting. I think that's also why you've seen the growth of all of the boot camps and different types of alternate learning spaces where people don't need, it might sound strange to me as, an, as, a, 
as a university professor, like I think people could be wildly successful in this industry from very atypical backgrounds. And actually, that's one thing I'm proud of at Timescales. We have people from a lot of different backgrounds in terms of learning and education, and we're a globally remote company. And I think that type of diversity on many levels have really strengthened um, our company. I like that. Yeah, I have a non-standard background because I didn't go to college. I did an early exit out of high school in 11th grade, the same program that the homeschool kids would exit from, because I was building software online. And it was my career. And I convinced my assistant principal and my parents to like let me exit school early so I could devote more time to building software systems. And it worked. <laughs> I think that's true for a lot of us. Like, you know, now they teach computer science in early on in high school and even before. Right? And like I went to, you know, public school and we didn't have any of that. And I learned my programming by like programming for random things on the internet on the dial up on the dial up internet. So I think it's interesting in that it's it's become most, you know, ubiquitous now. You know, turning back to you people think of Princeton as a you know, uh, humanities and all that stuff, by far the most popular major at Princeton is computer science. And it is the most popular classes, the most popular major. And so, you know, it's funny how ubiquitous it's it's taken over everything. You know, while I, I still think that there's really so much more growth we could have from people of all, all different types of backgrounds. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And people that have, you know, s- specific experience and that really care what they're doing, I mean, I, that's what I found as an entrepreneur, and you can tell me if, if you find it to be true too. But I definitely look for the people who are really curious, who are curious, who are persistent, who have discipline. I look for these sort of you know traits, and then I figure out like how far off their knowledge base is based off of what I need them to do, <laughs> and that sort of helps determine if it's like if it's adjacent, if they're really close. I'm like, all right, let's hire them, and then they can figure out how to get there. If it's too far away, then probably not so much. But when you're hiring people within Timescale, what are you looking for? I think, you know, what I like to think about is how do we build strong teams, not necessarily about only the individual. And you talk about looking to how individuals can, what are their skills, what are their, what their insets? You know, I trust my teams to, to interview for technical, you know, abilities and whatnot. Although we've thought a lot about how to build an interview process where we we don't do elite coding. We don't do any of that stuff to make it seem like, how are you going to do your day-to-day in, in our type of environment? But, you know, what's one thing that's interesting is, you know, we build a database, we build highly technical cloud infrastructure. Our customer is the developer. So the great thing is that we're able to attract engineers who are kind of passionate about what we're building, you know, because they understand the product. They're often users of the product. But I also think that, one of the things I really focus on is even though we're a developer-centric company, we want to think of what we're building, you know, really customer and product first, not are we building this because it's cool technology or because it's cool engineering. And so what that means is when we're thinking about how to hire and how we build teams, I really look for this balance of people who are, you know, who are really passionate about the technology. We have a lot of people that says, I love databases. I want to work on databases internally. Well, coupled with people who are, kind of very product-centric and very customer-centric. Engineers, I mean, who are thinking like, well, there's various trade-offs, but like, what is the actual engineering? What is the customer? What is the user problem are all solving in it? And how does this feature I'm building really map to the needs of my users? We sometimes talk about that internally as 
outside in versus inside out thinking. You know, inside out is we know our technology deeply. What do we need to do? But our users don't. So how do we try to put ourselves in the mindset of our users, particularly of the new users to the product, and think outside in, how are they going to experience this, this technology, this onboarding, this new user experience, and try to get everybody aligned around that? So to your question, you know, I really look for how to build great teams. And yeah, that team is made up of great individuals. But in thinking about teams, I often think about, you know, this is what the current team structure looks like. How do we look for individuals who's going to complement that with a different focus and different skill set as to just, you know, more of, of, of the same kind of core background. And what are you learning right now as a leader? You know, I think that we're kind of in that hyper growth stage of timescale. And, you know, in a short number of years, we've, we've both the number of, of users and customers, but also just just in terms of people, you know, we've we've grown in, in about 18 months from about 40 to about 180 people. And, you know, that puts a lot of new skills as, as a founder and leader of what you need to do. I think I've always been a bit of a problem solver. And I think a lot of engineers are, a lot of, although I don't like the term technologists are, certainly academics are, you know, try to solve problems. Um, and that really works well in small groups and with, with smaller problems. You know, when you, when you scale, you can't be the problem solver for everything. You need to think about how do you actually more paint that longer-term vision and how do you create the structure where other people are able to do that. And yet realize that while you're in that fast-growing, hyper-scaling notion, you're bringing a lot of new people onto the team. Half the company has been there less than a year. And so you need to do that balance between how do you give people that space that think about constantly, how do I line them to where the company is going into the broader vision? Because many, most of the people are new. And so I think that's always the tension and the challenge of any startup in our position. And, and certainly that's something that, that I've been going through myself as a, as a leader. Tell me why you don't like the word technologist. Well, it's probably the same reason why uh, people who have uh, LinkedIn bios of, of thought leader and futurists. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Maybe those are, maybe I'm going to get all these uh, angry tweets or uh, angry uh, LinkedIn DMs Hopefully. on that. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, I like, to, I, I like to work on problems and I like to solve problems for people and uh, you know, build things that help change the industry. Yeah, we have that in common, man. So, dude, tell me a little bit about what your family life is like starting being a founder and starting this this business over the past five years. Actually, the pandemic was particularly challenging for us because my wife's also a, a, an ER doctor. Oh, okay. So not only did we you know, go through everything with, with children, but obviously she was ground zero for a lot of things that was happening with the pandemic. But I think that, and Timescale today is a fully remote company. And I think that actually has been really a great, ability for us to attract i mean lots of companies tried to go remote but you know when you're committed to being fully remote it allows you you have to think carefully about how you want to structure your teams and structure communications and and deal with it's not like we're remote everybody 100 miles from one city we're around the world in 26 countries and six continents and when we deployed something that's 
times go cloud, people trust their business. The great thing is we have follow the sun operations and support across the entire world, which is which has been reflected great in how we could make sure we build a reliable product for our, for our users. But it also has allowed the flexibility for people with their home life to like, and especially because we're globally remote, uh, it allows us to think about you know how people can structure their working hours around also things like family commitments that don't always run nine to five. And the fact that we are actually already globally distributed means that most people in the company, there's not one nine to five that the whole company operates on. So it's really allowed a level of flexibility that I think has been greatly rewarding both for me personally, as well as for a lot of you know people in the company. Here's the thing that I was thinking about when you were speaking we had to intentionally decide we were going to be a remote company. We couldn't be on the fence. I couldn't like have the office and maybe have the people in the city come into that one and then have them half remote. I don't see that working well at all. The hybrid stuff is difficult at best to do. But we made a conscious decision and decided to go fully remote. And honestly, I loved it. I'm a big fan. We've been this way for at least two years now. Yeah, we initially actually also had a um, headquarters in New York City and we had an office and you know, maybe for a while, about half the company was physically located there. And as soon as the pandemic hit, we closed that office and really um, went fully remote. And and we've also scaled a lot more since then. I think that's the way to do it. You have to be intentional. You have to go all in. And you could kind of build a company much more about that. A hybrid is the worst of both, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You get that second class citizen thing that happens. And it's funny when you get to read about something and then you get to experience it and you're like, oh, that's so true. Because at first when I read it, I had read somebody talking about the experiment that they ran with that. And then that's when I learned that second class citizen term. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. But it's probably not that big. Like if you had the right people and you had the right culture, I'm sure it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Nope, it happens yeah. and it's hard. And you, it, you just, for me personally, remote was the right choice at that time. And it still is today. Yeah, you're a smart guy, man. <laughs> I don't know. I think you know when uh, build a great team, and I I think I think that's one of the things most most proud of is you know we've been able to really get a lot of people who are are passionate about it. I think you know I, I talked a little bit before. I think one thing that's also very exciting is we we you know we, we like to say at at Timescale that we're helping kind of build the next wave of computing, and I go, kind of go back to those applications that we talked about. It's not that we're trying to like allow you to take your back office Oracle application and migrate it to something else, though there's nothing wrong with that and a lot of businesses need that. But I think when you look at the, around the world, what's the type of things you know, people are going to build over the next 10 or 20 years, a lot of them are these modern applications and, and we're kind of, I, I mentioned before, fundamentally a technology optimists about how we could use technology to, to kind of change the world. And a lot of that, we're doing that. You know, we have companies that are deploying sensors to track air, air pollution in Delhi and, and earthquake detections in, in Chile. We have people, you know, who are monitoring the manufacturing lines of some of the largest global manufacturers of EV batteries for cars. And so you look at all these applications and, and I think it really gets the team excited about you know our ability to kind of build infrastructure to help enable all this type of change. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that oh this is a great plug for if people are interested in learning more about working at Timescale, where would they go? 
timescale.com slash careers. We have uh, we're, we continue to grow broadly across the whole company and we we hire globally. So you're hiring in multiple roles then? Yes. Cool. What are you personally excited about the next milestone for Timescale? I think that you know the first couple of years we really focused on kind of building the core database. This was also an interesting change as we you know spent the first couple of years building the core technology of the database. We always thought that ultimately where the market is going is that people want to consume these technologies as you know managed services as cloud experiences. But you kind of, you know, we weren't, there are companies who take all these open source and they're, the company's job is just running existing open source things. We are both building the underlying technology and then also building the cloud infrastructure that that's a core part of. And so we actually have, interesting, almost very two different teams, two different personas of both database internal engineers and kind of cloud engineers and, and all the product experience around that. And so we really launched our core product, uh, our cloud product, uh, about two years ago. Um, but more broadly, if I fast forward five years, I don't think what people want is, hey, I just want to manage database in the cloud. You know, we think about like, what is the experience of a whole database cloud? Because when you're an application developer, you know, if you think of a, even a modern microservice architecture, you don't run a single database for all of your microservices, for all of your needs. You often have lots of these individual databases, but often they have data that is useful to bring together. And so the great thing about Timescale Cloud is we kind of enable that. It's not just about how do I run Timescale DB, but how do I enable the entire fleet of your database that need to exist? And how do they share data all between them? And how do I think of all these cloud-native tools like general fast storage and object storage, and how do I make that cost-effective and performance? And so we make the user experience really well. It's, it's SQL, it looks like table, you could do joins. Over the covers, we've done a lot of the heavy lifting for you that kind of couples together all these different technologies and really kind of exposes that unified user experience. And that frees you up to really focus on your problem, like build the type of application that you want, and like kind of us doing a lot of that underlying heavy lifting. I've got a fun question for you. Is that okay? Absolutely. Hypothetical. You're driving to the ER to have some lunch with your wife and you're at a stoplight and up next to you, this guy pulls up, right? And the car next to you rolls his window down. It's Elon Musk. And he's like, hey, Mike, I want to show you something. I, I just built this new invention. Come check it out. So you go to Elon Musk's house. Super cool house, by the way. And he shows you that he has built a time machine. But you can go back to yourself and tell yourself one thing right when you were starting college, the first week when you met your co-founder, you can tell yourself one thing, what would it be? So this is Elon Musk. So it has to be actually bought when I first learned about Bitcoin in 2012 or whatever it was, <laughs> 10 cents, it was buy Bitcoin. Um, no, I, was, I, I actually used to do crypto. So it's funny, I worked on the first e-cash system at a company in the year 2000. So it was, it was kind of crazy. We'll let you off easy with buy Bitcoin. <laughs> I'll yeah. stick with my buy Bitcoin at 10 cents. There you go. Now, I made a note when you were talking earlier because I didn't want to interrupt you. You're making a, a good point. But you said this phrase I hadn't heard. I think you were talking about like team organization or something. You said follow the sun. What, ah. what is that? Yeah, so for you know the idea that the sun's around the world at, at all points. So typically if you're running 
basically a full support model or if you build important infrastructure that people rely on, it really often means that like you have shifts of people who are working at all hours because when something happens to go bad, you want somebody within you know five minutes to be able to step in and do it. And as organizations begin to scale, you know, large support or large operational organizations often set up centers around the world. And one of the reasons they do so is so that they could actually have people who are basically working at and they're on their local hours, you know, it's, you know, but it basically is available 24 seven. And, you know, as a fully remote company, we're able to basically provide that, you know, kind of much earlier than a traditional company who is kind of office based. You know, we have people in Asia and Australia, Europe, Africa, South America, North America, West Coast, East Coast, because in the end, I talked about this a lot of these applications. And what we found at Timescale is our customers rely on us for their mission-critical applications, for their customer-facing applications. We've had people said, when Timescale goes down, our manufacturing lines stop. When Timescale goes down, um, we're no longer trading in the market. Our support engineers get paged at night if you were ever to go down. And so because of that, we actually take a lot of, um, you know, we take that seriously. And we think about how do we build the practices, the process, the organizational structure where we kind of live up to the needs that, you know, kind of our customers place on us. That's smart too, because if you have that set up, you don't have to necessarily wake up engineers out of the middle of the night, right? If you have engineers in different, all the different time zones. I've heard of that, but I'd never heard it called follow the sun. And whenever I hear something on this show, even if it's like the stupidest thing and people are laughing, I'm like, I ask people to explain it to me because if, if you explain it to me, Mike, you're a professor. I'm never going to forget it. Right? <laughs> and we're really proud of the team, both the engineering, but the operations and support team. Really proud of the quality of people and dedication that we have. And that's, that's really been a great experience we've had here at Timescale. So if there are people listening that necess- like aren't necessarily software engineers, you also will hire customer service people that aren't directly developers? We have people across lots of different areas, marketing, HR, operations, design, engineering, product. Um, we have customer success who work with our customers. Our, our support people are all engineers because, I mean, we oh, cool. have a super technical product. You know, our customers are engineers. And so when they're looking to speak to them, they're generally looking to speak to um, highly technical people. But we certainly hire in lots of different areas as well. That's a pro. I hope you advertise that on your website. <laughs> we've really been really grateful in the quality of the people that we've been able to hire, and I think also amazed on how you know great people are around the world. And that's been a that's been a real boon. Let's say one of your newer engineers, you interact with them, and they, they, I was going to say they walk up to you, but you guys are remote. <laughs> you're at you're at the company they event. Slack I me. love high Yeah, they slack you, and they say, "Hey, how can I stand out?" How can I become better and be more useful? Or like, what could I do to, to stand out? What would you say to them? I think two things. First of all is, is you know, part of the important thing is during our, our onboarding process, we really talk to people about what we want, you know, how people can be successful, you know, 30, 60, 90, six months, really as we begin to grow and put in a, a lot more structure around engineering and technical leadership. So have kind of dual tracks with that, but also levels by which people kind of a clear picture about how people progress in their career, including at the IC level, because I think a lot of engineers really still like to be deeply technical and so want to remain as individual contributors. And what that means to stand out, I mean, it's not just about 
how good a programmer you are, but you know how you can provide technical leadership, how good you are at communication, especially true in a remote environment, how you can get things done, you know, various attributes which we think lead to a more successful uh, engineer and more senior engineer. To your question about how stand up, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things about, you know, some people looking at their own career progression is that I think that most of the times people are so-called promoted um, when they've already been doing that job. So, you know, they're promoted to a certain role or level because they've already demonstrated that they're operating at that role. And so, you know, generally, I like to think about how can you have not just be passive about I'm assigned this task, can I do it? But how can you, to the extent that you're able, and it's going to mean a different thing to different levels of, of seniority, but how can you more broadly have a positive change to your team and the company? And that doesn't only have to be you know, purely technical if you're an engineer. It could be communication. You know, As a developer-centric company, we, we write a lot of content and we talk about it and, and people write great blog posts and there's, you know, we get on Hacker News a lot because people are really interested in what our engineers say. We have a you know, really technical blog. I think lots of people enjoy it, blog.tamsco.com. We also have what we call developer Q&As. So we know our users are, are developers. You know, we don't like, we don't put things behind paywalls, ask for your, your emails. We just want to put all our stuff out there. And we do a lot of stories about what our users are doing, whether or not they're in our community and, or whether or not they're actually our customers. The great thing is they're like really technical articles. And there's a lot of really fun things about how people are, are using it. And there's lots of different ways that people can contribute. And I think people are most successful when they're actually working at what they're really passionate about. And so if you want to really hone your engineering craft, do that. If you want to hone the way that you could communicate and explain to other people, do that. Um, we've had people who move from engineering to like technical product manager roles because they're really passionate about how to think about how you build better product for customers. You know, so I, I think that it's really leading into your strengths while also kind of improving areas that you think you need to be kind of a balanced person. I, I often like to think about kind of T-shaped people. You know, people are really strong in one area and they try to also get balanced in other areas. And, and that's hopefully work on that myself. And uh, I think that's actually a, a good thing for more junior people to work on as well. I like that. I haven't heard that before. T-shaped people. Yeah, That's usually good. in certain areas, you know, you have breath strengths and there's depth strengths. And I think it's good to I think it's good to try to be great at one thing, but then also have some skills in a in a a variety of other things as well. Exactly. Because you could be the best in the world at your craft, but if you don't have communication skills, <laughs> are you the best in the yeah. world at your craft? You know? So man, this is great though, Mike. I've Really appreciate you coming on and hanging out. I mean, we made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. Thanks a lot for making it available. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.